0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Cabot Creamery, celebrating 100 years of being a dairy farm family-owned cooperative. Learn more at cabotcheese.coop. That's cabotcheese.coop. This week on a special bonus episode of Meet in 3, we find out why the bacon, egg, and cheese, that classic bodega sandwich, is popping up on menus of New York's trendiest restaurants.
2: We did a few iterations of it, and I was trying to fancify it. We tried the sausage, egg, and cheese, and then we tried to put shamula sauce on it. We used feta cheese, and we're just like taking ingredients of the Mediterranean, if you will, and try to infuse it, but uh, for me, it was like a car wreck.
1: Tune in to hear about the wild journey of the bacon egg and cheese from deli to fine dining on Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we are going to talk about a little-known lobbying organization uh, that drew my attention uh, from an article uh, in the New York Times by Andrew Jacobs. Andrew is a reporter with the Health and Science Desk of the Times Uh, based in New York City, but he previously reported from Beijing and Brazil. He's also worked as a metropolitan reporter, or metro section, I should say, with stints at the style section and the national desk covering the American South. Wow, what a portfolio. Uh, his reporting for The Times has included such varied topics as the presidential campaign, the aftermath of the earthquake in China, and the lead-up to the 2008 Summer Olympics, among many other topics. Um, Andrew, you had an absolutely fascinating CV. I, I wish we'd had the time to, to for me to read your entire fascinating biography. I mean, really. And you lived in China for quite some time, did you not?
3: Seven and a half years, but he's counting, yeah.
2: Yeah. And you are a multilinguist. Another thing that impressed me mightily. So in addition to Mandarin, do you also speak Cantonese?
3: I do not know.
2: No. Is that less used? I display uh, it my ignorance is because here. Mandarin
3: fully. Mandarin is a national language of the official sort of language of China. Cantonese is really only spoken in the South and in Hong Kong.
2: Oh, I see. And where did you live? I mean, we're totally digressing here. I'm wasting time. But nevertheless, where did you live in China? I lived in Beijing. You live in Beijing? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Fantastic. Okay, so let's, um, thank you, by the way, so much for joining me today. Um, I know that this is kind of a long ways away from your, you know, because being a reporter, you've got a new story every week, if not more rapidly. Um, But in September, I noticed this article in the Times um, that was kind of breathtaking, uh, that you had written about a very little known lobbying organization called Improbably Enough Ah, uh, the International Life Sciences Institute. So, what what captured your attention about the ILSI, given the fact that it has such a low profile?
3: Well, uh, ILSI, as it's called in the industry, um, I've, I've sort of they've been on my radar for a while because they they do fund um, a fair amount of uh, studies on uh, food and nutrition, um, but they've also kind of kind of under a lot of criticism lately around the world because they've been expanding their activities, uh, especially in the developing world. They have 17 offices, um, and they sort of build themselves as a, uh, a sort of independent research um, kind of institute. Uh, but if you sort of very gingerly lift off the cover, you'll see that they are, are maybe a bit more than that. Um, they are funded entirely by the Goliath of the Food. Uh, and chemical industry, um, you know, from McDonald's uh, to Cargill to Coca-Cola, and in fact, they were um, established um, by Coca-Cola by um, a Coca-Cola executive in the late 70s, um, a guy named Alex Malaspina, who who ran Ilsi for many many years. He retired. Um, I think in 2005 or six, but he's still quite active with the organization. Uh, and since then, um, you know, they've ex- you know, expanded greatly their activities around the world. Um, and they have a budget of $17 million, um, uh, wow. all of it provided by their members, which are all, you know, food and drug and chemical companies.
2: Mm-hmm. So we're talking Pepsi-Cola, we're talking uh, Monsanto, now known as Bayer, um, you name you know, it. You name tell it. Us who are some of the other big players in this? Cargill, you mentioned.
3: I mean, basically, uh, <laughs> and Nestle, General Mills, um, all the all the big companies that sort of dominate the processed food industry uh, are members. The only one who actually is not a uh, recent last year, Mars, the candy maker, uh, actually mm-hmm. backed out um, and one of the executives there said he they could no longer support an organization that uh, funds advocacy-oriented studies. And That was sort of a, a, an outlier, but most of the other members um, are pretty, um, you know, they stand by the organization. Um, and it's a way for these companies to have some influence on nutrition policy uh, around the world without sort of getting, you know, having their hands dirty or getting too closely associated with some activities that have been, you know, criticized as being kind of advocacy-oriented, you know, favoring the interests of these, you know, sort of corporate BMFs.
2: Right. So, in other words, Coca-Cola is not about to publish a paper uh, that says that uh, drinking Coke is good for you. But Ilsi might say, "Well, it's not so bad." Is that kind of how well, it works? Well,
3: yes. And in fact, what you know—it's funny you mention that because what what Coca-Cola uh, has done is. Uh, they've they've backed away from this, but they in recent years they funded this organization called the Global Energy uh, Balance Network, and this was sort of a, a, a sort of a stealth organization that was trying to say that obesity is not a problem of too much calorie intake or or too much sugar intake, but about not enough exercise, and they tried this um, funding this organization and New York Times. Um, Anna O'Connor sort of uncovered the link to Coca-Cola, and they they sort of folded that that effort. But that was pretty controversial. Um, and ILSI has, um, you know, in in China, for example, uh, Ilse is very very powerful. They in fact they share offices and staff with China's um, CDC, Center for Disease Control, uh, and they in recent years have been pushing this very same theory that more exercise is the answer to the obesity crisis, not reducing, um, you know, your intake of uh, basically junk food and soda.
2: Right, right. So, so how... Describe the organization. Like, how how does this actually work? Do they have – they have 17 – you said they have 17 chapters or something like that. They have 17? And they have a budget of 17 million, so that's sticking in my head. Yeah, they, um, they have a lot of And they of started them. in the 1970s, yeah. so they've been doing this for a good 40 years. Yeah,
3: like, they, they, they sort of uh, – they also have a publication, Nutrition – uh, journal that is fairly well regarded that they fund. They have um, another research arm, and they got a lot of bad press in um, in the in the nineties for uh, funding some of the anti-smoking or sm- funding some 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 sort of stealth. Uh, work to to delegitimize the uh, anti-smoking legislation. They were trying to sort of uh, pro- project an alternate narrative that you know about smoking, uh, and they that was a really bad moment for them because it was sort of uncovered their what they were really up to. And they've since disconnected from any kind of uh, smoking uh, work they, they did. Philip Morris at the time, I think. Uh, was active, and they no, they no longer allow smoking or tobacco companies. Um, and then they sort of shifted to focusing mostly on food um, nutrition policy. Um, and then um, in the early 2000s, they ran into trouble with the WHO. They were part of some of these non-governmental organizations that were involved in making policy, and they lost um, their access to WHO because it was uncovered that they were actually uh, pushing policies that were were favorable to the food industry.
2: Wow, and and who did the uncovering in that case? It wasn't you.
3: No, that was the WHO itself. Um, I see. Yeah, um, and they lost some of their access there, and they've sort of since um, tried to. They, they've they've really tried to uh, outward on the on, on outward looking. Uh, changed their policies and issued very strong statements about their independence and that they won't they won't get involved in policy making um, and so they've tried to kind of clean things up but it, but according to critics they haven't really because they've sort of taken on this new tactic of of having its members and, and trustees. Uh, become active in different countries on their nutrition panels, government nutrition panels, and other efforts to, p- to pass um, food legislation. They get involved in that on the inside, um, and that's really where they've, they've been criticized because, um, the, you know, ILC will say they're not an industry group, and others say they are. They are a front, uh, a front group for industry. So therein lies sort of the tension.
2: Yeah. And and who are the experts that they find? Are they uh, academics? Are they scientists? Are they people who have uh, sort of, you know, in the manner that we revolve uh, experts in and out of government and industry in this country? Um, is it sort of that kind of thing, like where somebody would work, uh, say, for the, you know, I don't know, the pork board, but then they would then work for Ilse as an expert on correct, meat consumption? correct
3: that's exactly what they would do um, and they there are a lot of scientists out there a lot of academics who will um, you know they they are employed by a university, um, but they will also do consulting work for the food industry, um, and they um, they will sort of have two I guess two taskmasters. Um, they will you know get, they will be on ILSE's board, um, but they'll also represent um, a university, uh, and they'll publish um, you know legitimate uh, papers on nutrition. Um, and that's probably where they run into the most trouble. Um earlier this month there was a bit of a bro ha ha over a a paper that Ran in um, the annals of internal medicine uh, that claimed that eating that sort of claimed eating red meat and processed meat was not as bad for you as everyone had been led to believe. And that study um, really was really very controversial. And then it turned out the guy who um, led that study had gotten money from Ilse uh, that he didn't disclose for a previous controversial study that uh, downplayed the the. The dangers of of excess sugar consumption, um, and that um, is the kind of a typical uh, situation that you'll see um, is that these academics um, will uh, kind of push um, or advocate um, sort of counterintuitive nutritional studies that will um, you know maybe make things less um, seem less uh, onerous or, or ominous in terms of consuming. Unhealthy food products like sugar or meat. So um, that's that's kind of how that's it works. That's
2: just—I mean—that story got so much play because it was just such an outrageous um, <clears throat> and I thought very poorly uh, constructed article. I mean, in and of itself, the article was—you uh, know—it cited that one study in a in a sea of literally thousands of others that were completely contradictory I was amazed that it got the press that it got um.
3: <laughs> Well these so what's interesting about these kinds of studies that they do they they're they're, um, they're not fresh research what they do is they sort of mine existing bodies of, of, of research' mm-hmm. they'll, they'll go through um, you know hundreds of other studies and they will uh, draw a conclusion based on their sort of analysis, and that has been criticized by some who say, you can basically look at any body of research and sort of draw any conclusion you want. And that's the case of this meat study, is critics, that they just sort of picked out favorable sort of data points that would back up this contention that, that eating a lot of red meat is not, in fact, bad for you. Um, so <laughs> I think that is a tactic that, that is kind of under some criticism.
2: Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was like on the front page for the next week. You know, yeah. what, it got displaced by the usual Trump circus. But it was a really big deal, and the author, and certainly for know, anybody. Well,
3: I'm sorry, the, why, why that happened is because the study required the, the, the authors to disclose any conflict of interest within the last three years. And the lead author of that paper did not disclose that he had received money from Ilsey in fact, during that three-year window, what he later claimed is the money actually had come in a few months before the cutoff point. Uh, even though the study was dated of, in that window, he said, "I got the check before the cutoff." And you know, a lot of oh. people think that, that's disingenuous. You know, you're just sort of um, fudging that. Uh, you know, as a err error on the you know error on the, the side of, of excess caution, and just and you would have been better off disclosing that, and maybe might have avoided this um, brouhaha. But, um, you know, that's the kind of thing uh, you're dealing with here.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I I looked at their website for, you know, quite quite a bit of time uh, preparing for this. And it it is absolutely benign. I mean, like the average consumer looking at this saying would never dream, uh, that the articles that they promote in their magazine or that the, the, the studies that they're, uh, supposedly funding are anything but absolutely, you know, hundred percent above board and, and, uh, you know, in the public interest. I mean, they have sections, uh, like sustainable agriculture and nutrition security and food safety, science and health. And I, I ended up reading a long article on fruit juice, mm.
1: um,
2: which they uh, claim should be considered part of five servings a day of fruit and vegetables with the caveat that it, you know, mustn't have any added sugar. But I was, uh, you know, I, I scrolled, I didn't end up reading the whole thing because it really went on and on. And I know that <clears throat> juice has essentially been, uh, you know, debunked as something that is, you uh, going to substitute for a serving of fruit and vegetables, although this article was saying well, that if you're not no, getting it any, it's f- better than none, okay? But yeah, I was not, not surprised. Fiber. You're
3: not getting so, the substance of fruit, which is, you know, the fiber. You're The just fiber, getting exactly. The sugar um, but it, um, it, it, it
2: went on a great deal about the, you know, the polyphenols and, the, and <laughs> the various other components, but but what was really interesting is that I get to the very end of the article and I look at the author and I see that, you know, it says the, the study uh, was was not funded by any juice company, but the author had served on the Scientific Advisory Board of the European Fruit Juice Association. So, you know, I, you know at the end of the day, when you see something like that, I mean, I think that's going to kind of almost immediately discount a lot of what you've read. But I will say that the references cited in this article, which were lengthy, um, seemed pretty legitimate. So, you know, talk a little bit about how they kind of get away with sort of I don't know what to call it—greenwashing or whitewashing. uh, What is going on here? As you said, you know they're they're cherry picking their sources, they're cherry picking their references. Um, What what would the average consumer or even the average kind of uh, policymaker, if they were not primed to look suspicious, you would have no way way.
3: of knowing. You have no idea, right? The problem is that it's. It's done in a way that's so subtle that, you know, it really takes a professional um to, who's in that industry to know what's going on. Um and, you know, this is um the, the the like for example, uh you know, the the main chemical in Roundup, the the weed killer that has been in the news, glyphosate, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, now, the WHO, for example, um, ruled that that uh, substance is probably a carcinogen. That's the way they worded it. Um, and then there was a subgroup that was put together to sort of recon, you know, after uh, the industry sort of reacted with horror, they put together a subgroup to look at this. Um, and the two people who were on that group were Ilse uh Ilse members um, um who were connected to the chemical industry and that uh, that panel came up with the opposite um conclusion which is it probably wasn't a carcinogen so you yeah. know that's kind of um, where they, they they come under criticism um because even you know they use presumably scientific methods to come up with their determination but you know if you look at the the, the possible biases of um, the, the people making the decision, it makes you question. You know, and, and that's where you know, it, it's about, a lot of times it's about perception um, of conflict of interest. You know? um, sometimes it's not enough just to, be, to, to, to really um, not have any obvious conflict of interest, but it's about the perception of conflict of interest, and I think that's where they run into problems
2: yeah absolutely we're going to take a short break for a sponsor drop i'll be right back with andrew jacobs from the new york times we're going to talk a little bit more about this shadowy group ilse uh stay tuned and we'll be right back
1: cabot creamery is proud to be celebrating 100 years making the world's finest dairy products Cabot's award-winning cheddars and other dairy products stand apart because of their farmer's tireless dedication to quality and freshness, to healthy land and a sustainable future. A century after they started this journey, Cabot's farmer owners still know what matters most, family and community. The simple truth that we're stronger together than we are apart. That delicious products are the reward of a job well done. That when you love what you do this much, the best is always still to come.
0: Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe. Taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala.
2: This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, talking today with Andrew Jacobs from The New York Times. We're talking about a really interesting and very under-the-radar a lobbying group called ILSI, which is the international um now I've forgotten what it actually stands for.
3: Life Sciences Institute.
2: Life Sciences Institute. I know what a guy that, that to me right there is kind of suspect. <laughs> it sounds it's like a, a Sun it's Myung Young Moon organization, doesn't it? Yeah. So Andrew, um, let's talk a little bit more about the article because um, you you really describe some kind of fascinating um, and illustrative uh, incidents. So you 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 talked about um, a lot about India, uh, which has its own obesity problems, and they are trying to uh, curb the consumption of sugary beverages, or as many other uh, com- uh, countries are. And um, and so uh, there is a certain uh, inf- in uh, certainly, kind of infamous in my mind, a guy named Dr. Sazikaran, uh, who was working in yeah. India. Talk a little bit about what he was doing there.
3: Well, I think what happened in India is really quite illustrative about how uh, these things work. So, Dr. Sisakaran um, was a, you know, a very esteemed uh, nutritionist who worked for the government, um, for the, the government's sort of main nutrition institute. He retired about seven years ago, and then he immediately went in, in sort of to consulting for food companies. Um, and so, uh, last year, um, India's sort of main food, uh, they sort of equivalent of the FDA. Passed a um, a warning label uh, regimen where they would put these red labels on unhealthy uh, processed food packaging to sort of warn people that this this stuff isn't good for you, um, and industry reacted quite um, unfavorably, and so the uh, the agency immediately suspended the rule and said, okay, we're going to put together an expert panel to consider this or reconsider this, and they put Dr. Karen at the head of this panel. So this uh, immediately raised red flags, um, and there's been a lot of criticism about why he is heading this effort. He, I, I, have to, I should mention that he is an Ilse trustee, um, and he's very active in the LC, the global uh, uh, network. Um, you know, based in Washington. Um, so he's constantly flying back and forth to Washington and, and to, to meeting all over the world. Um, and I should say that these are not paid positions, um, which is uh, adds another kind of gray area. He's not getting money, but he does get all-expense-paid travel around the world um, and, you know, get to stay in nice hotels and go to meetings. So this was, um, you know... <clears throat> Sorry about that. I've got a cold. Um, so this is something that has kind of raised a lot of red flags. The, um, the agency in India still has not issued the decision, um, but there has been a sort of a bit of an uproar about his presence on this panel. So this is what you kind of see a lot in the developing world. Um, and, and and what Ilse's been sort of brilliant at is they've expanded – their activities in, you know, among these 17 branches, most of them are in the developing world. Uh, There's a bunch in Latin America. There's, um, you know, as I said, in China and India, Middle East. I mean, they really focused on places where um, uh, consumers are finally have enough money to afford these kinds of processed food, and it's a real growth market for the uh, multinational food companies like Nestle and, and General Mills and, and the like, and McDonald's mm-hmm. and Coke. So um, what they've been good at is uh, because they don't, these countries don't necessarily have a very well developed infrastructure of uh, you know health and nutrition infrastructure, especially um, you know nonprofits they kind of get it on the ground floor and try to help shape um, the creation of these policies. Um, so that's kind of where uh, we decided to focus. Uh, India, uh, China, for example, we did a story earlier on, um, uh, like, as I mentioned, this sort of extraordinary, extraordinarily close connection between ilsi, China, and the, the, that country's um, CDC, um, like I said, they share offices, they share staff. The guy wow. who's running ILSE China is also <laughs> the CDC's a, a top, you know, and and he says there's no conflict of interest there. Um, of course, that in in any other country that would be said, you know, said to be absurd, how can you uh, do both, have wear both hats at the same time? Um, so, And also yeah. Brazil, they've been fairly active uh, sort of in getting their people on government advisory panels that were formerly kind of occupied by uh, university academics. So um, it's a very, very brilliant tactic, um, and it works. It has been working.
2: Clearly. Uh, because clearly those, uh, food companies are expanding exponentially into those new markets and they're, they're doing a great job of, uh, promoting their products. I mean, in a, in a now distant trip to Vietnam, like five years ago, I, I was literally in these tiny little villages in North Vietnam in the mountains where, you know, electricity was spotty, but there was a cooler full of Coke and Pepsi.
3: Well, yeah, you can get Coke in places where you can't get medicine, you know, you um, yeah. What's extraordinary, you know, and this this has been extensively studied. And you know, in, in Africa, for example, you can't get me, uh, certain kinds of vaccines and medicines into places because there's no refrigeration. But you can yeah. get a cold Coca Cola. So it's you know, and the reason I think this matters is because processed food. Um, we've already seen what's happened in our country, where you have uh, you know this soaring rates of obesity. You know, you have some fifty percent. Of Americans are overweight or, or obese, um, and in the, in the developing world, of course, up until recently you had malnutrition, um, and so that's flipped. Uh, and I say malnutrition for lack of of lack of food. And what's happened now is you have a growing obesity crisis, and. A lot of that is still malnutrition, but it's people who are getting plenty to eat, but the food that they're getting to eat, um, this fast food, this processed food, doesn't actually have much nutritional value. And so processed foods are replacing traditional kind of wholesome foods that that nations uh, for millennia sort of depended on for their sustenance. So, you know, they'll displace a traditional cooking in a place like Brazil or India, which would rely on whole foods of vegetables and and legumes and rice and and getting people to switch to, you know, instant noodles uh, and other kinds of uh, processed food that unfortunately don't really, aren't really good for you. So it's a a really important battle that's being fought um, and there's not a lot of attention um, has not been paid to that.
2: No, there isn't, and I, you know, and and to push a little further on that, it's that it's not just that they're uh, pushing things like uh, instant noodles, but also the pushing of of of, of cheap proteins uh, like McDonald's hamburgers or Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, two things that I saw all over Vietnam as well, um, and so even though there's a tradition of eating meat in both of those in, in that country and and throughout the middle the the Far East, um, it's 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 you know, encouraging people to eat it in ways that will definitely have an impact on their uh, ongoing public health. And that, that to me is, you know, and, and the loss of culinary, um, uh, traditions, which has had such a tremendous impact on our own public health here in the United States. I, I want to go on for a second, because one of the things that really interested me also was um, you saw some emails that pertain to the World Health Organization's stance on sugar. And there were emails that you read that that said, you know, described their, their efforts to influence Dr. Margaret Chan, who at that time anyway of writing was uh, running the WHO. I think she's still the head of it. But um, talk talk about that a little bit, because that, that was very... Well, that- It was quite
3: revealing. Kind of alarming. Um, Margaret Chan, uh, she actually no longer is the head of WHO, but at the time she was really uh, keen to sort of do more on obesity, the growing obesity crisis. And she was coming, you know, trying to get the WHO to take a strong stance on this. And that really alarmed. Certainly, Coca-Cola and um, ILSE members, and there was um, uh, an organization called U.S. Right to Know that, through Freedom Information Requests, got some of these emails because they were sent between uh, ILSE's um, sort of um, brass uh, and um, some academics at public institutions, public universities. So that was uh, they were accessible and what some of those emails showed was this this gentleman Alex Malaspina who founded Ilse, who retired but is still quite active he was sort of emailing people at Ilse saying we need to we need to do something to counteract this um she's going to destroy you know our, our industry our business um, yeah. and other people responded in a, you know in agreement and you know, they were trying to come up with ways to get to her and try to influence her and i think that was quite revealing it showed um that they that he is certainly still active um, you know with with the organization and then last year um, there was a whole to do with ilci uh, mexico because at the time uh mexico was uh you know um, basically imposing a soda tax very uh, aggressive soda tax because they have a serious right. obesity problem and so um Ilse Mexico organized in the in the midst of all this a conference on sweeteners uh, that the panel uh, the members of that panel were sort of famously um pro kind of sweetener pro um soda industry and that brought a lot of negative attention to Ilsi so Ilsi what they did was disbanded Mexico and the email sort of showed from 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 Alex Malaspina <coughs> said, "You know this is a shame that we had to do this, we, you know we've um hopefully we've hit rock bottom uh, and we you know we can figure things out and so they dissolved mexico Ilse, Ilse, Mexico, but then a year later it was back up and running with a former president of uh, vice president of mexico's uh coca cola outfit um so so Ilse, Mexico is now run by a former Uh, Mexico uh, Vice Vice President of Public Affairs. Um, And, you know, you see that a lot, that Ilse's top brass are former um, industry
2: people. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, I have to say what what strikes me most in listening to you and, uh, you know, and and the reading that I did is is the breathtaking cynicism of this organization and its uh, proponents. I mean, the idea that uh, you would, you know, discuss internally how to influence Dr. Chan uh, in order to promote uh, the drinking of beverages that are clearly leading to poor health outcomes. I mean, it's it's just kind of mind-blowing. Um, I, I shouldn't be surprised. I've been, you know, I've been doing this radio interview thing for like ten years. There's very little I haven't seen that hasn't, you know, that isn't but this is just on a level that it just kind of mind blowing. So so to to talk a little bit further, because we're gonna have to wind this up in a couple of minutes, what what kind of pushback uh comes? I mean, how how do people you know, you said you've pointed out a few instances where they've been busted. Um you know, for doing what they're doing. But uh, in the main, they seem to be able to operate with impunity. What, what, do you see uh, any kind of um, efforts to uh, discredit the organization or to somehow uh, alert uh, consumers or, or government or policymakers uh, to their activities? I mean, what, what do you think uh, is the end game here?
3: Well, there is a lot of effort, and I think you see a lot of it in the the developing world. Um, There has been a lot of pushback in India because they do have a pretty robust civil society. Um, So there has been a lot of attention there, and that seems to be having some impact, especially with this red warning label. There's been a lot of um, fury over it. We don't know the outcome yet. Um, and um, in Mexico, certainly had the impact of dissolving Ilse, well, for temporarily. Um, yeah. And in this country, there's there's definitely um, been a lot of attention paid to uh, uh, some of the industry's activities uh, related to um, you know food policy. I think um, it's basically it doesn't really penetrate. I say beyond. Um, kind of people in that world, um, you know, we certainly try to publicize it. But I think for the average American, it, it, it's a little bit hard to kind of wrap your head around. So I think the main thing is just to kind of, you know, we just kind of bring it to light and see what happens with it. Um, but I do think they're on the defensive at the moment. It's not certainly denting their efforts, uh, at least for now. But um, the best we can do is sort of shed some light on the situation.
2: Now, does that imply that you're going to continue following this story and that the New York Times will uh, allow you to uh, publish periodically uh, updates on what an organization like this or others? I mean, certainly this is not an anomaly. There's it's not a one off. There must be many others just like this, don't you think?
3: There are. There's a lot of effort right now. The big, you know, and in this country, of course, we we actually it's pretty we have the kind of the worst of all worlds because. The food industry is so powerful and lobby, yeah. you know, not just Elsi but all food organizations are so powerful that they've really stymied any meaningful, um, you know, legislation um, in terms of soda taxes. You know, they've been pretty aggressive on combating those. Um, yes. and then the food labeling is a big, a big thing. You know, we have I would say probably the most backward among the most backward food labeling systems. A lot of countries now um, use. Uh, sort of a traffic light scenario on packaging, where they'll have a red, or a yellow, or a green uh, coloring on the label to say this is good for you, or if it's green or, or red, this is not good for you. Um, and we don't have that in this country. No, we don't. So basically, you need to turn the, <laughs> you need to turn that package over, and you need to really be able to understand um, the, the those little, the fine print of the ingredients and what it means. And I think most people don't understand that which is why um, uh, I have a, a story that I think is coming out today or tomorrow about children's uh, beverages, sweetened beverages, and how, um, you know, j- despite promises to sort of um, reduce marketing to uh, children, um, you know, two-thirds of all children's drinks are sweetened um, with, yes. you know, sugar artificial sweeteners. Um, and so, um, it, you know, we have a, a pretty big um, um kind of mountain to to um get up over in this country um you know and childhood obesity is you know a huge problem um and and soda you know sh- uh, sugary beverages provide half of the sugar that we consume um this added sugar that um really has no nutritional value and is um has been implicated in um you know sort of skyrocketing rates of obesity and diabetes and hypertension and all these card- cardiovascular sure. diseases um, and, um, there's been some, you know, some progress, you know, people are drinking, definitely drinking more water, um, than they did in the past. And, um, but there's still a lot of people, uh, and children drinking, um, sweetened beverages.
2: Oh, no doubt about it. So you think your article, your, your newest piece will be out either today or tomorrow?
3: Yeah, that's more of a sort of a visual. Um, it's sort of a visual kind of storytelling where we we throw up a few different the best-selling um, children's drinks and just sort of show how much sugar. Um, for example, you know, sort of Minute Maid lemonade, um, which yep. you, you get in the um, in the produce section next to your orange juice, and you know, you drink one little glass of that, and you're basically getting a uh, half of your for a child. You're getting half of your uh, sugar um, uh, for the day so um right. a lot of these drinks um you uh you know this apple uh, adam and adam and eve uh, uh fruit drink, for example, one serving of that provides all of your sugar in one glass um, yep. for the day um and you know that that's um something a lot of people don't understand they they have this notion that something like a fruity drink is somehow good for you, but it's actually um, it's not fruit, 100% fruit juice. Um, it's in the rest of the, the sweetener comes from sugar. Um, right. So that is a sort of ongoing challenge. And, and you really need to have a PhD in public health to understand when you're shopping what you're buying for your kid because it'll say on the, on the front, you know, 100% natural ingredients or 100%, um, you know, vitamin C. Uh, and you think, and it's got pictures of fruit on the label, and you're like, oh, wow, this is good for me. Um, but if you look on the back, you'll see there's a lot of sugar in these um uh, Yeah, you'll
2: see that sugar is the second ingredient in any one of these. The first one being either juice or water. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, we we have to drop it there, Um, uh, Andrew. Thank you so much. Um, Is there a place where people – do you have a website where people can follow all of your Um, stories? Because I I certainly plan to.
3: (laughs) You can just Google uh, my name, Andrew Jacobs, the New York Times, um, and you'll come up with a lot of the stories. We had a series last year called Planet Fat. Um, which was a series that explored the, the, the sort of exploding obesity crisis in the developing world. We have a number of articles that, uh, you know, from Ghana, from, from Malaysia, Brazil, that sort of uh, detailed how these countries are sort of being inundated with uh, processed food and the impact that's having on public
2: health. Wow. Incredible. Well, thank you so much for the work you're doing and thank you for appearing on the show today. I hope we can speak again. I've really enjoyed the conversation and I there's a lot you're working on a lot of stuff that is definitely uh, germane to what I try to follow here on this program. So um, I really appreciate your time today and'll I'll stay in touch. Um, and thanks to my sponsor, thank you to my listeners for tuning in and I'll see you next week with another story. Talk to you soon, so long for now.